Hey folks, it's a new week, which means it's time for us to tell you about our benevolent overlords over at Fangoria. You know they have a hell of a podcast. Uh, uh, hold, 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 hold up. Did you did you not hear that? What was that? No, hear what? Uh, maybe it's just in my headphones. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, I'll I, let you know I, if I hear it again. Okay, I think so. You just want me to start over? Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Okay. All right, all right. <clears throat> Hey folks, it's a new week, which means it's time for us to tell you about our benevolent overlords over at Fangoria. You know they have a hell of a podcast network with us in Colors of the Dark, but we also wanted to make sure you knew about their quarterly magazine. For 40 years, Fangoria has been the gold standard of genre reporting, and in recent times they've taken it up a notch with beautifully executed collectible issues of their magazine filled with the hands-down best coverage of the horror, sci-fi, and fantasy genres. None of this writing is available online, so make sure to head over to Fangoria.com and pick yourself up a subscription. And because you're a listener of the show, you can get a whopping 25% off your annual subscription when you enter in the promo code KINGCAST at checkout. And on with the show. My name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Red rum! Red rum! Red rum! Sometimes, that is better. Hello and welcome back to the KingCast and the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name's Scott Wampler. And I'm Eric Vespi. And we are your hosts. And our guest today is a journalist whose work you may have seen on Kotaku or io9. He's the man behind Marvel's Rise of the Black Panther and more recently has been holding down the narrative design front on Insomniac Games' Spider-Man Miles Morales. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the KingCast stage, Mr. Evan Narcisse. Evan, how are you doing today? I'm good. It's cloudy. Yeah. Is this the first time that you guys have recorded with somebody where they're all in the same city? No, we did an episode with Britt Hayes at one point. Okay. Uh, And she's here. Yeah, you you might be only the second, though. Okay, good. You've had an interesting run of years. Uh, You had the Black Panther thing. You moved on to the Miles Morales thing. Um, I just want to say, like, you and I have crossed paths a number of times, usually in a bar after some event or another. Uh, or a movie theater lobby, remember those? Yes, yes, <laughs> I do. And I don't know you very well, but I, I just kind of want to say that, like, I'm really fucking proud of the work you're doing somehow. Like, not in, a, not in like a parental way, but like in a, I know that guy and he's doing really cool shit sort of way. It's awesome to see, like, somebody who's, you know, a blogger eventually, like, move up and be doing things that you know must be fucking awesome for them. So congratulations on that, man. Thank you. It's all very surreal still sometimes. But, um, you know, I didn't plan any of this, you know, so it's it's <laughs> cool to kind of wind up in these spaces and, you know, largely by invitation, you know, like. Sure. Uh, once Rise of Black Panther came out, people started tapping me on the shoulder and they're still tapping um, and I still have a shoulder. So both of those things are good. <laughs> when when these offers do come in, do you just completely shit your pants and go nuts? Mostly, Yes. The weird thing about making this jump is I left a staff job. So I'm back to like contractor freelancer mode. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, there's always the nerves about, should I say yes to everything? What if the work starts stop coming? Like, do I turn down work? And I've had a few instances recently where I've turned down things, which would have been fun to do, but like 
from like a return on investment perspective or how much can I integrate this with the other stuff that I'm juggling up to and including being a parent, you know, like you always have like the, the, the heebie-jeebies when you turn down something and you're like, oh, could I, should I? But like, ultimately, I got to be kind to myself to the point where I'm not overworking myself uh, to a ridiculous degree. So that's been a balance right. that's been hard to strike again, being back in that kind of space um, and not guilting myself when I don't have like a pressing deadline. Uh, so those have been the challenges, but all in all, it's, it's been a really, really good ride so far. You're taking on creative aspects and that's always stressful, no matter, no matter how much you love it. It's whether you're, it's creativity and in, in like, um, writing a, a feature article or something like, uh, yes. you know, or, you know, actually creating a story. It, it, it there is an, an amount of stress that comes with it. That's one of the reasons why, you know, freelancing so hard is because then you have the normal amount of stress and then you have the extra stress of hunting down the uh, making pitches or hunting down your money that that is owed to you and, and all this other shit. Yeah. I would also um, like to pay you the following compliment. You were a part of the uh, what may have been the only good junket interview I have ever been on, <laughs> which was some years ago at a was Wait, can I guess? Can I guess? I'm trying to think what we've been in the same room for. Only one thing. Only one thing. Was it Villeneuve for, yes. for, for, yeah, for, yeah, for yeah. Blade Runner? Yeah. yeah. Where was that? Was that San Francisco? That was San Diego. That was San okay, Diego. San Diego. Yeah. 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 And uh, it was the rarest sort of thing where everyone at that table knew what the fuck they were talking about. <laughs> and everyone was like, you know, going around asking very good questions. You know, not like, you know, sometimes you, you'd write up a junket interview yes. after the fact and it's like eight terrible questions in a row and then like two or three good ones, maybe total. Um, but I, I recall that instance as being, you know, everyone in the room came to play. Villeneuve was on fire. And I think it was you that had the best question in the whole thing, which was which cut of the original Blade Runner are you making a sequel to? Was that you? Yes, I think that yeah, was me. That was yeah. so fucking good. It was everyone at the table, like I made the face and everyone else at the table made the face of, God damn it, why didn't I think of that? Like it was such a fucking great moment. And then he didn't, he was like, ah, oh, but well, um, you know, you know, like sort of, <laughs> you know, sort of fucking shuffling his feet and, and trying to make it work. Uh, but um, in French, he was shuffling his feet in French. That's important <laughs> to note. Yes, very mime-like, in my opinion. But, <laughs> but yeah, that that's one of the very, very, very few uh, junket interviews I ever did over the years where I felt like I wasn't surrounded by just absolute clowns and you fucking came in there and just ba-bam! Fucking, you know, like a lightning strike. I'm, I'm glad dead. I wasn't a clown. No, 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 no. I'm mime, in fact. <laughs> <laughs> so you know it's but it's it's it, uh, before we get into the nitty-gritty like i will say i like i miss doing that work sometimes you know like a lot of times you know like i just what i inhaled like what was blood of zeus and ted lasso over the last two weeks mm-hmm. and um i was like you know you get that itch where like i've just consumed something and now i want to share my opinions about it in a considered way with the world and i will not do that on twitter Oh wait, I used to do this somewhere else, somehow else, and, <laughs> and um, yeah, I, I, I miss it uh, sometimes. But you know, like I said, I'm, I'm going to stay on this ride for as long as these various places will have me. There were fun moments in it, but I'm not, I'm not sad to be 
to have that period behind me. I felt like I had I had done everything I set out to do. I felt like uh, after having a website blow up in my face multiple times, uh, I was pretty much done with that line of work. Yeah. Uh, man, I was excited to move on to something else. And thank God we have this show because I don't know what I'd be doing otherwise. I was going to say, own, I love this for you guys. My, my only other talent is bartending. I'm not going to go fucking bartend right now. So, no. you know, thank Christ I spent all those years uh, reading Stephen King. And and speaking of which, uh, what is your Stephen King origin story? Like, um, you know, when- I'm trying. I've, I've been trying to think about that. Like, when did I first encounter his work? I feel like it was probably in an anthology, a horror anthology, probably like you two. I was a library kid, and sure. you know, I was raised by a single mom, and you know, she was raising. Uh, I'm, I'm a twin, um, which already meant like double the everything, and then uh, we have a younger sister, so keeping us engaged was like exhausting for her. Plus she was a nurse. She worked 12 hour shifts. I remember the first time I met uh, nurses who did eight hour shifts. I was like, what? That's a thing. Um, (laughs) They don't steal half your day from you. Um, So she, you know, she'd be tired a lot. And just like, so one of the things when I got old enough, I would just walk to the library, you know? Um, And I'll never forget the, the Dewey Decimal catalog number for, it's either comics or, or arts criticism is 741.5. And I'd be in that aisle, that 700 aisle all the time. And, you know, I'd read uh, stuff about comics, but also like horror and sci-fi, you know, most speculative fiction stuff. So I think the first place I encountered King was in a short story collection. My clearest memory was reading the Dark Tower books in high school. I forget which editions I remember there were soft covers with illustrated covers and illustrations inside. Yeah. The um, trades. Yeah. The trades, <laughs> you know, it's funny. Like I, I, I have never been a fan of King the way I am of like certain comic book writers. Like, I don't know, Daniel Neal, Dwayne McDuffie or any of Like I can cite you chapter and verse for that stuff. But like with King, it's more like this ambient knowledge, which is I think a good way to put it because He's so in the atmosphere now, now more than ever, which is hilarious to me. Like, I feel like we've lived through three cycles of this, at least in our lifetimes. I think one of the big inflection points for me was watching the Dead Zone television movie in real time when it aired and and only later finding out that it was an adaptation of of King's work. So, you know, again, nowadays. The Anthony Michael Hall thing. And Walken was in that too, right? No. No, Walken was in the movie. Yeah, the, the movie. That's what I was thinking of. No, did not. No, you think about the, the Anthony Michael Hall show? Wasn't that a TV show proper? Yeah, well, yes. you said TV. That's why I thought. Yes. Yeah, well, the movie to me, the the first place I encountered the movie was as a TV movie. It was like on ABC, and they had commercials and the whole nine. So I, I oh, watched. Okay. I got you. I watched it that way. But yeah, it's a movie not made for TV, but on TV. Right. But the, the point of it all is, is like nowadays when I watched the Dead Zone. It was just a movie, right? Nowadays, they lead with the Stephen King, you know, like the provenance of this project, like was a a thing that was not um, as important. Um, And now it's like, you know, it's the whole thing, you know, at least from a marketing perspective, is that like, yep, here's another Stephen King thing, like the little Stephen King things you liked. So, yeah. Yeah, well, that's I mean, that's certainly the selling point. Especially on TV stuff. I mean, I guess in recent years, the TV adaptations have taken on something of a something of a more top shelf feel. You know, they're getting a listers in there. They're the budgets are higher. You know, certainly more so than they were in the early nineties. 
my buddy Mark Bernardin worked on Castle Rock. Oh, no shit. Oh, yeah. that's right. I know that. I know because when I heard he got that, he had written an article for BMD Magazine. And when he got announced as being part of the thing, I emailed him and tried to get him to like submit for an interview to just talk about it. And it, yeah. it was just like, well, I'm like in the writer's room and, you know, I don't know what I would have to say and I don't even know what I can say. And, you know, it never went anywhere, but um, it is super tricky. That the yeah. Whole yeah. Yeah. At first, Especially when I, I've been on both sides of things. Like on one hand, like as a former journalist, I'm like, ah, fuck PR, you know, like, let me just, let me just talk my shit, you know, like I know what to say, what not to say. But on the other hand, like you do have to respect. Yeah, totally. Boundaries. I like Mark though. And I, uh, I, I definitely liked that first season at Castle Rock was good as hell. Speaking of budgets. <laughs> well, I mean, um, Abrams is, is doing this, uh, this overlook hotel series for, or bad robot is doing it for, um, for HBO max. And I'm real curious to see what sort of budget they, they bring to that. I think it's going to be extravagant. So when we were talking about which title you should tackle, uh, for this show, we went back and forth on, on some ideas and then, uh, I, I was sort of walking you through some of the titles that hadn't been picked yet. And we arrived at grandma, which is a 1986 Twilight Zone episode written by Harlan Ellison based on the short story of the same name by Stephen King. That's night. Is it night shift or skeleton crew? Eric? Skeleton. Skeleton crew. Okay. Yeah. I keep I'm always going to get those confused. It's fine. I don't have a show about Stephen King or anything. <laughs> When was the last time you saw this, first of all? So this was a great pick because it pings on several things, which I, I, I've had like intense experiences around. I watched the Twilight Zone, the 80s reboot um, when it was airing. You know, I don't, I don't remember how much time separated that and Amazing Stories. But to me, in my mind, they're of a piece. Speculative fiction anthology shows happened during the 80s. And, you know, as somebody who was already obsessed with that stuff, I, I tuned in. Twilight Zone in particular was a thing where, you know, I remember growing up in the suburbs of Long Island and in the basement, either my mother's asleep or she's at work on the night shift. And Twilight Zone was on like it was 1130, 12 o'clock. I think it was after reruns of Star Trek, the original uh, uh, series. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, like I definitely followed that Twilight Zone thread throughout my adolescence. I've, I've been a bad Jordan Peele fan and not watched the reboot, but I'll get around to it eventually. Are um, you a Zone fan in general, though? Like before? Yeah. The 80s? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Before. Yeah. No, the, the original Rod Serling stuff is killer to me. Yeah. Um, agreed. Yeah. And I, so I definitely watched Grandma when it first aired. I didn't remember it until I watched it again for, uh, for this episode. And Harlan Ellison, I went through a really big Harlan Ellison period um, in my teenage years. For those who aren't familiar with uh, Ellison's work, can you give like a quick recap? Yeah, he's kind of like um, considered one of like the the eminence gris of like science fiction, like latter day science fiction. He wrote for Star Trek. He has had, you know, like bestsellers. He's just one of these, you know, incredibly prolific, cantankerous, like, (laughs) yeah, litigious. 
litigious. Yeah, litigious too. Like he will sue your ass in the heart. Successfully, successfully sued James Cameron for Terminator. Yeah, saying that he stole his idea, even though he didn't really. And when I say successful, I mean he like settled with Cameron and got got a shit ton of money for it. Yeah, yeah, but like a big bold personality of science fiction, like talked a lot of shit, oftentimes backed it up. But you know, to me, like <laughs> Ellison is like the science fiction nerd equivalent of like Norman Mailer, Hemingway, like Ralph Ellison back when, you know, writers would be into society pages. People like paid attention to what they did. And like Ellison never got quite that high, but like he lived his life. Like he thought he was a shit. And that was something that's apparent in his nonfiction writing and in his fiction writing. So, you know, I don't remember how I got into Ellison, but like, I remember, um, he has a credit on this daredevil story from uh, the mid eighties where, you know, daredevil basically gets lured into a house, which has been retrofitted to be a giant death trap to kill him. And it's just great. Um, and I remember when he got home alone house, like booby trapped. Yeah. But like ramped up to like, you know, a million. Um, like, like the, 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 the last shot of the story is like, you know, he's running away from the house. It's exploding. And he jumps off on the fence and he, he, he's walking away from the fence and the fence turns and like the pointy tips on the fence, like shoot out his spears and he has to duck them. I'm like, this just went, it went, it took it all the way. They don't, they left nothing on yeah. the floor there. I'd like all- to see Mr. Kevin McAllister do that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So no, grandma was like a good pick for me because I feel like the textures of Ellison and King are complementary in some parts of it, but also the transition to another medium complicates the work. Anyway, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but like, yeah, this was this was something I definitely remembered experiencing in the TV version, not the book version. Did you read the short story at any point? Yeah, I did. I did. I, I read it this week for the first time. I don't think I read it. Fairly different. Yeah. They're really different. And I think the short story is better, to be perfectly oh, honest. For sure. Oh, yeah. Because there's like this great build to the short story of like dread um that just really it's a short story that you can read in in, in in an hour or so but like king takes the time to let the, the the creeping kind of like fear and anxiety of this kid who's home alone with his grandmother uh who kind of creeps him out like he lets that build and the twilight zone episode does not <laughs> if people haven't read it the short story is about uh, a kid named george or georgie um, the King loves naming his kids Georgie, apparently. Um, love Georgie. <laughs> love loves the Georgies. Loves it. Um, he's he's uh, left alone. And what's great about it, as you mentioned, he's left alone with his uh, his ailing grandmother, who he's always been afraid of. What starts off as like the basic fear that every kid had. There was always that old person that, you know, that you had an old relative that for whatever reason, weirded you out. It was the way they looked, the way they smelled, the the, the attention they were giving you. There's always that weird old person. And, and that's kind of like that, the baseline here. But then he starts elevating it into kind of what, like when I reread it, it reminded me like, this is like a proto hereditary, right? Where yeah. you just like slowly yeah. are peeling back these layers like, oh, that old woman's kind of creepy. It's like, oh, no, that old woman's a witch. Oh, that old woman's like trying to like dead, but they're dying, but not, uh, you know, that's not the end of her, her, her terror. I don't know. I'd love to talk to Ari Aster. I wonder if, if he ever read this and that was in the back of his mind at any point, but uh, it really does feel like the Stephen King version of Hereditary, the story. 
I would like to ask all of you, what what were your relationships like as kids with your grandmother or grandmothers, whatever the case may be? Were you were you scared of them? Were like they normal? Were they I cool? was. You know, my maternal grandmother I never met because she passed when my mom was very young. Um, sure. My paternal grandmother, uh, my parents are immigrants from Haiti, and my 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 dad um, moved my maternal grandmother here as she got on in years. And it's funny the things that you realize as you're growing up. My grandmother had no love for my mom, and it was a very frosty relationship. And you know, I can probably count on two hands the amount of times I actually met her and spent spent time with her. So. You know, she's a woman who came here, you know, she had a certain amount of agency in her life back in Haiti. Um, she was a businesswoman and successful one. And um, she comes here and she, her son has to take care of her. And, you know, oh, he's saddled with these kids by this woman uh, she doesn't like. And so she just didn't have a lot of love for us. You, you throw in other things like there was a big language barrier. But also, like, you know, I just remember my mom bringing us to her apartment in Brooklyn and her not opening the door. And yeah, it's, it's about as fucked up as it sounds. You didn't realize it as uh, at the time as like, you were a kid, but like, yeah, she definitely felt like this otherworldly presence. I'll never forget she 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 chewed dip. There was always like a snuff box, <laughs> and I was like, "This is gross. Is this what old people do?" You get older yourself, you were like, uh, is "No, dip not old. In Haiti? I, I think they had tobacco there. Yeah. One thing you guys got to realize is Haiti was one of the tourist capitals of the Caribbean, like in the forties and fifties, it really wasn't until like the Duvalier regime backed by the United States where things started to take a real a bad turn. Like a lot of the infrastructure right. and the, the graft and the greed and the corruption um, really ruined the Island from what it used to be. But like the golden age of Haiti was like, you know, people would go there on vacation and there was beautiful resorts in the hotel. So that's and, and dip a dip apparently, which is not a glamorous golden age <laughs> it's just not, I don't think of it as a black thing. I guess. I, uh, I guess that. I mean, and to be honest, neither did, neither did I. My grandmother was the only instance of that I saw growing up. Anyway, um, I think of yeah. it as a baseball player thing. That that's the or, yeah. That's yeah. yeah. My buddy oh, dated yeah. a dated Good a girl once uh, who was she would dip, and we all called her the Dipper when she wasn't around. <laughs> it was like it was such a specific thing and we had never even you know growing up in Tep- uh, Texas there's a fair amount of dip going on here and and chewing tobacco I think dip is more prevalent than than chew but yeah it was so fucking weird to see like a lady just like throw in a two finger dip you know watching football or something and we're like what the fuck it's specific to a certain type of person is, is the kind point. of thing that nickname of yours highlights the fact that it's the kind of thing that like, it's the kind of habit that <laughs> if you have it, people are going to define you by it, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. Totally. Eric, what was your grandmother like? Uh, well, I had a, 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 a weird relationship with, uh, with my family because my mom was, a. Uh, I never met my biological father. I theoretically I did when I was like six weeks old, but he was an abusive guy. He was very mean to my mom and she broke it off with him very early. And, uh, and I never once in my life uh, met him and he passed away when I was in my twenties or so. So I don't really know, know that side of the family at all. Uh, my, my mom remarried when I was 10 and I got to know my stepdad's grandparents 
Um, and I, they, they were fascinating people. My, my grandma on grandma Vespi was a wino, a little bit of a wino. I don't remember her not drunk, uh, but she was very nice. And she was like the little short Italian lady, uh, who was always drunk on wine and, uh, she would say, but my, but my grandpa, they lived in Albuquerque and my grand. And so I'd visit him, you know, sometimes over the summers and, uh, uh, but my grandpa was really cool. He's like this skinny old you know italian dude <laughs> but he was a world war ii bomber pilot and he flew bombing raids over germany and and uh and he actually went to ut which i found out like after i'd moved to austin which was mm-hmm. really weird uh and i have like this picture of, of, of him in front of the ut tower from like 1947 or 48 or something it, it's crazy yeah were you ever scared of either one of them no no not really um you know the the thing with old people is that there's always something to be scared of about them you know sometimes it, you know i was never scared like you know how like uh, uh in bill and ted's bogus journey he his version of hell is his creepy grandma like right. I, I never really had that creepy grandma uh, fear but you know there's there's something about you know when you're really young seeing somebody really old and seeing the you know, the thinness of their skin and, you know, on their hands and the liver spots and like the yellow nails. I mean, mm-hmm. there is something that that'll always just give you pause about uh, about very old people. I wasn't my my maternal grandmother was very kind, very uh, Canadian, very eager to please. I remember, but in a subtle way. But my, my on my dad's side, his mother was. I found her constant chipperness sort of not unbelievable, but I was skeptical of it. Even as a kid, it seemed false to me. You know, chipperness, she was, you mean like uh, Donna Reed or just like, like, yeah, very the, like leave it to beaver. Mom? You know, those you've worked with people like this where they're like very, they're just very upbeat and they're happy all the time. And like, Oh, what can I do for you? You know, like, like that sort of thing. And I found it, I've always found that kind of personality very off-putting and I found it off-putting in my, my grandmother at, at that age. And then, you know, that, that was like early, early childhood. And then around the time I was like 11 or 12, I went to Thanksgiving dinner in, we, like me, my mom and my dad all went up to Virginia, you know, where his sister lived with her husband and his mom and dad lived. And we all had Thanksgiving dinner. And these are like backwoods Virginia folk, you know. And I must have been, I'm going to guess, 10 or 11 years old. And my uncle, like in the middle of Thanksgiving dinner, started like telling an extremely racist joke. I was old enough to know like whatever was happening was inappropriate, but I didn't have the words for it. And I didn't know why. And like, but I could tell by the body language of my parents, you know. And at a certain point in the meal, my dad sort of like slammed his elbow or in a certain point in him telling the joke, my dad sort of slammed his elbow down on the table, pointing his fork at the guy and was like, you're going to shut the fuck up with that right now in front of my kid. And it was like dead silent in the room. And then everyone tried to like move on from it. But I knew that I had witnessed something that was very bad. And in the years since, I have found out that all these people were racist. You know, they they grew up in the fucking hills of Virginia. You know, these are like mountain folk. And my dad had left 
you know, uh, his upbringing to go into business for himself. He went into the Navy. He fucking was very successful in his own right after that and is still somewhat sympathetic to his own family, but also put a big fucking distance between him and them because he just was sort of like, this is not who I am, you know? So at that point, the shit with my grandmother took on more of a sinister tone. But I remember when I was growing up, always being like sort of uncomfortable in her presence. It felt everything felt disingenuous to me. Well, you know, what's funny about what you're saying, uh, uh, Scott, is that I think that's one of the things about the short story version of, of Grandma that works so well. Is that like, you know, like it's a kid's eye view of the adult world totally. um, and the, including those unspoken whispered family tensions and conflicts that you only get like these little fragments of when you're a kid. Right. And you don't really understand it. Like, you know that, Oh, uncle so-and-so doesn't come around anymore because he did something gross and disgusting. But you never know what that is as a kid. Right. Exactly. And I think that's maybe Part of the reason why, like, I I saw this episode, I think, when it aired, or at least close to it, because I remember trying to watch it with my parents and being just terrified of it. It was locked into this fear that I had at that age of old people and being alone with my grandmother and, you know, a million other things like that. The pressures of being a kid and being you know, thrown into this situation where like, you got to be the man of the family now. And you're like 10, you know, you're like, I don't know what the fuck to do. I think that at the time, that's probably why it worked so effectively on me. Rewatching it last night did not have that opinion. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it is not very good. I'm actually a really big fan um, of Barrett Oliver, the child actor that's in this movie. I love never ending story growing up. I loved uh, Frank and Weenie, and he's in uh, what's it, Daryl? That he was in that that movie. Oh my Darryl. gosh! Was, wow. What is, wait, what is Daryl? It's where he's like a robot kid, yeah, yeah, and yeah. Uh, and like uh, what's it, Carrie Green from Goonies? Is somebody somebody else is like in that movie too? Or maybe I'm thinking of Lucas. Anyway, I'm I'm mixing up all my weird like bizarre '80s kids. He's a robot kid. <laughs> But yeah, and Daryl, it's like Daryl's like D period A period. Yeah, it's an acronym for something. Yeah, yeah. What are his powers? Uh, I don't remember. I I I haven't watched that movie since I was ten years old, probably. But I wa- It was one of those things that was for like one summer. It was on three times a day on cable, so I watched it three times a day, like uh, all the time. Um, so like I, he's a really good actor. I think like, you know, I still can watch never ending story to this day and, and go, you know, that kid's really pulling it off. Uh, not so much here. And this is something I think he shot right after never ending story. And it, and it really does feel like the inexperience of the director, um, who's a cinematographer named Bradford may, he shot a lot of the twilight zone series, but then he also shot uh monster squad, you know, one, another one of my favorite eighties movies. No um, shit. But he uh, he directed this this film and it was his first thing. Or he directed this episode and it was his first thing. And he he stepped in because uh, William Friedkin was going to direct it and he had to back out. <laughs> and uh, so imagine coming in. <laughs> yeah, I, I, can you imagine the William Friedkin version of this? By the way, this this uh, Twilight Zone episode, oh even with his budget, like taking those same people, like Piper Laurie does the voice of the of the grandma, and like he could have like worked some some. Uh, Mercedes McCambridge magic or something with 
Hmm. You know, with that voice, so it's not so cheesy. I don't know, but I, I, I really think that it was probably Bradford May's inexperience, and he was a little bit more focused on the technical. Like, uh, uh, I actually have the DVD set, the old like early aughts DVD set of the eighties twilight zone. And I listened to his commentary and his commentary is all, it's not focused on performance or anything. And, and clearly that wasn't his, his clearly. main focus here. Oh, clearly when, yeah. when, when he was doing it, because he really kind of leaves this, this poor kid out, you know, high and dry. It feels more like uh, a half speed, like uh read through, you know, version yeah. uh, of a performance where he's just like acting with his hands and it's all, you know, everything is like the worst child acting, you know, is shouting his lines and everything has like a tilt lilt up at the end, a tilt up, you know, yes, grandma's over there, you know, like it, it gets annoying, screechy. <laughs> uh, I thought, you know, it, it, it's real bad, but like the commentary, he's all focused on, yeah, and we got this cool, you know, jib here and we got, you know, this piece of technical crane equipment here to get this shot. That's all he really cared about was, you know, in making this, um, uh, and, and it's very prevalent when you're when you're watching it now. It's you know you, you can tell that they were more concerned on how to make the two rooms in a hallway that they had for this twenty minute segment, <laughs> uh, you know, look cinematic than they were about the performance aspect right. of it. Right. Well, it's, it's interesting, Eric, that you talk about like the technical filmmaking aspects of it because I feel like there is some ambition there, right? And like it is not like a good episode. It's not a good adaptation, like at all. But like. You know, the first thing you notice in those opening minutes is like, are they doing peanuts? Where like the adults like <laughs> yeah, don't appear fully in the frame and they're like these larger than life mysteries. Um, they're only partially seen or heard. And the angles that they shoot at reinforce that, right? Like there's a couple of shots in the beginning where like the camera is like up and away from him, like at this odd kind of like perspective. And it makes him look make really small. small. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, there's there's some visual thought that went into this, but like in terms of storytelling or selling the uh, the the final shot, uh, you know, spoilers territory here. But the whole thing is all about this kid uh, who's there and his grandma dies and he kind of discovers in the story. He's like piecing together in his mind all these little things that make him realize that his grandma was a witch and she had gotten like kicked out of the community church for practicing, you know, witchcraft. And she was able to conceive only after she like embraced the Lovecraftian gods and stuff like that. You know, all the stuff he's piecing together from, from his mind here, he like digs up a book, you know, under her floorboard or whatever. But uh, the, the whole thing and the reason why I drew the, the hereditary comparison is, is uh, uh, you know, she dies, but her, her, what she wants is is to essentially take him over, you know, his body over and like be reborn within him. And then the last shot of the Twilight Zone episode is uh, uh, I, li- I listened to Harlan Ellison's commentary on this, too. And Harlan was like, you've seen this happen many times, you know, since. But we did it first. And I'm like, no, I think Thriller did it first. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because the whole thing is like he's you, you don't see his eyes when the mom comes back and she's he's like grandma died. And and she's like, oh, I'm so sorry or whatever. And then he does the look at camera and he opens his eyes and they're all like red and fucked up you know the grandma grandma eyes and i'm just like no michael jackson <laughs> that was in michael jackson's thriller sorry um you know it's funny that you talk about like the episode in that way because you know i, I was watching it then i wrote down some notes and i was like it accelerates way too quickly right oh and for it, sure and it leans so hard on like these standard issue horror formulas in the short story like it's kind of ambiguous as to the exact nature 
of grandma's monstrosity, but like in the TV show, they give her like again the lizard eye contacts, and she looks like a giant blob slug. They don't really show her body that much, but like at one point, you're like, is that like a thing? And this is really <laughs> bad special effects that clearly like. You know the guy in Big Trouble in Little China that like swells up and yes. explodes. Yes, it's like late stage that is Grandma in this. And like they take you know the subtext of the short story is like Grandma's a monster and it's slowly dawning on this kid. And they make that the the ur text of the of the TV episode where it's like oh no she's actually like like horrific physically in a way that like you know takes you out of the story in my opinion. I mean, we talked a little bit about Harlan Ellison's involvement here. He was a, a, crea- a key creative in the Twilight Zone relaunch. Um, and he is a fascinating character. And, you know, like you said, he's very braggadocious. And he he thinks everything he's ever touched is gold. And, and uh, you know, in terms of the adaptation here, I see in, in having to do a 20-minute adaptation of this story, of course, you're going to have to, you know, put some more stuff on the surface than than was there before it's you can't uh, rely on a, a a child's inner monologue essentially to piece this together i don't know how you do do it better i don't know if i could sit down and do it better but it, you're right it just it loses the the thing that actually makes the the short story creepy and what makes it stick with you he he somehow missed the getting under the skin and staying there aspect of it to the point where like you know, we were, talk- we were just talking about the ending. Like, the ending has, like, in, in the short stories, like, it's eerily ambiguous, right? Like, you're not necessarily sure Georgie has been possessed by the transferred consciousness of his witch grandma, right? You're like, uh, is grandma in George's body? Or was it j- simply the fact of George's brush with, like, forbidden necromancy? Like, th- like in the context of his own powerlessness and, like, kind of this negative space ignorance Again, he's being kept in the dark in the dark by the adults in his life. Is that enough to corrupt his soul? Like you know, there's something's different about him by the end of the story, but it's still kind of unclear. Whereas, like the TV show, like they hit you all over the head with like, oh, guess what? Yeah, uh, but you know what's also I think really effective is is him like like you said that, that this is him piecing together stuff that all the adults in his life know the danger of this woman. Yeah. And it's only through these, you know, certain circumstances that he's able to be left alone with her because his brother like had a was like a hockey accident or sport accident and he like broke his leg or something. So so his mom had to go go like visit him in the hospital. And and there's only one one scenario for him to be here. And the creepiest thing to me in that whole short story is that when he realizes what's happening with his grandma, he calls his aunt. Right. And his aunt is on the phone with him, uh, you know, as grandma's returning from the dead and calling after him, you know, wanting (laughs) to absorb him. Like he says, no, this is the spell. You need to command her to to lay back and like, because, oh, shit, I know what's happening. This is the witchcraft that that you need to do to tell tell her to protect yourself, which is really fucking crazy. Yeah. As a parent, this story hits really hard because it's like, oh, wait. Uh, what are the things I'm not telling my kid going to do to her? I like to think I'm a better parent than George's mom or right. grandmother for, but you know, like it's one of the realities you have to live with as you get older and start raising the dangers of dip. Just tell her about the dangers of dip. And <laughs> sure. One of the things that is 
really interesting to me because we were talking about Ellison before is I like, you know, Ellison's a, a, a writer who lived in all these different media formats, right? Like he, he wrote screenplays, he wrote science fiction short stories. And what's interesting to me is like, there are places where he's clearly trying to preserve like the odd syntax of King's writing, right? Like, you know, and that makes sense as he's a writer himself, you know, but there are certain lines that come straight from the story and I wasn't expecting that. And they kind of work. Which makes the stuff that doesn't work all the more disappointing, right? It's like, oh, right. You're a genre guy, Evan. And uh, Stephen King is predominantly known for for horror. But on occasion, he busts out some sci-fi shit. And this is a question we've asked guests a couple of times. People that would seem to have an opinion about this. And I'm just curious if you have any idea why his sci-fi stuff is not nearly as effective as his horror stuff so that would be like Dreamcatcher, the tommy knockers maybe a little bit of the langoliers like do you do you have you any know, theory on that? funny reading grandma again like i was struck by the things that i like about king's writing and like he really gets playful with language and structure right mm-hmm. and you know there are certain rules where you throw out in order to create an emotional affect right or a desired outcome in the reader like there's one part where georgie like just you know, starts kind of, you know, the, it's a third person narration, right? Mixed in with some first person observations from Georgie. But like, he kind of throws away the character voice and, and privileges the narrator voice in order to ramp up George's heightened sense of like anxiety and dread. And it works really well. It's like, it, he's using like, you know, $10 words that, that, that a kid in grade school would never be using, but like, they're so effective to heightening everything that's going on in the story. That's an indulgent, I think, kind of moment, right? And I feel like within a relatively grounded horror story like Grandma, you can do that. But if you're doing high concept stuff where you're already asking the the audience to buy into spaceships or, you know, uh, other kind of science fiction genre elements, if you do that on top of, if you do all this kind of indulgent, yet effective sometimes wordsmithing on top of like, you know, the ask of having the audience to buy into this, this speculative stuff. Like, I feel like those two things like bump heads, in my opinion. Wouldn't the supernatural suffer the same fate then? It depends on how you present it, right? For me, especially in the case of this story, like the way, again, I think what's brilliant about this short story is that like he slowly feeds you these revelations, right? So like Mm -hmm. you don't get to the witch stuff until like about halfway through, if that, and you've already gotten like the the kind of like asymmetrical guilty responsibility that Georgie's mom has to to take care of the, this woman you know and you get like the heartbreak and the kind of social pariah stuff right so to me that lays the groundwork and that eases the entry into the occult stuff right so like right on. once you re- once you establish grandma as a pariah who's prickly and difficult and a burden on this household, then to me, it makes the jump to, oh, once you found some fucking Neprechaunicon style books um, and you still have a baby, like that's that's that not as far. And I think the other rest of the presentation of the story is so grounded, you know, in terms of how he details the space that, that Georgie's living in and the neighborhood and the people inside of it. Like all that stuff makes the occult stuff feel more naturalistic in my opinion whereas like in a more high hard sci-fi or heavy sci-fi 
kind of setting, the world building and the and the the way you tell the story can work against each other if you're not careful. It's a good good theory. If either of you, when you were growing up, had discovered in your parents' house or your grandparents' house some Necronomicon ass books, some witchy shit, what do you think your immediate reaction would have been? I would have read them, just happily read them. <laughs> yeah, yeah there, there wouldn't be me like terrified. I'd be like, oh man, this is rad. <laughs> yeah, I think that would be kind of my reaction out of too. Are, like, there, are I, there illustrations in it? Even better. Yeah. Well, you know what's funny? My mom had a dream book, dream inter- interpretation book by her bedside the whole time we were growing up. And it was, I, I want to say it was a like an old like Renaissance picture, I think Goya, where there's a man dreaming. Um, and there's like stuff wafting away from his sleeping body that was on the cover. And that fascinated me. I don't remember actually reading it, but like I knew it was a thing that she cared about a lot, dream interpretation. And that, and I've written about this before. I did an essay on the OA after the first season dropped um, because the show was so white. And it basically was like, you know, we should have something to, to, to black and brown people too. And I used an example <laughs> from my personal life um, where my mom I think she was basically mounted by a spirit when we went to visit Haiti when I was in my teens. Like she didn't drink, but she was acting totally out of character. And one of the wild things was the the family members who I was with, her brother and some other people up in the mountains in the Northwest uh, province of Haiti, like it was totally normal to them. They were like, they're like, just leave her alone. Let her be, let, you know, let this thing work itself out. And the next day she like acted like it didn't happen. Wait, so she was just what? Wild now? I mean, yeah, she was like stomping around, like she was taking huge swigs of rum from a bottle, like also that was really deeply out of character for her. And, you know, it may sound wild, but like I saw it with my own two eyes. And, you know, like uh, voodoo is a cultural practice in the place where my parents come from. You know, what's even wilder about that is my mom would turn her nose up at these people. Um, I remember I've written about this before, but I was one time we were picking up a friend of hers from the airport. And there was a dude who had a vibe around him. He was dressed weird and kind of ostentatious and whatnot. And I remember my mom and her friend were talking to, to each other in Creole. And, I, you know, I could pick up enough of it. And they were basically saying that he was like basically a hungong, which is, you know, a, a, a priest practitioner of voodoo. And, you know, they were kind of talking trash about that. And because my mom was very deeply Catholic and, you know, she wouldn't go so far as to say that it was like some pagan stuff or whatever, but she was like, you know, the way to salvation was through white Jesus. Um, and later on in life, she starts doing things, which I l- later learned were like connected to like the folkloric practices of voodoo and African descended um, um, religions. Like, you know, she would leave out food for, you know, and coffee for her mother and other ancestors and, you know, mm-hmm. she didn't talk about it. So this is all stuff I had to piece together, like by myself, like Georgie in this story and make sense of it on my own. So to me, that notional distance feels a lot smaller, you know, and it's kind of weird to be talking about on a podcast, which a lot of people are going to be, be uh, listening to. But I've written about it before. Um, but, yeah, like there is a curiosity that you can't tamp down, you know, mixed in with dread. Part of me is like, well, it feels like there's more stuff than I can explain out in the world. And the stuff that my mom did, my ancestors did, is their way of making sense of it. Thankfully, they did not conceive through uh, necromantic means. Were you frightened by this experience? 
drinking <laughs> with your mom and you know drinking no, rum. No, around. I wasn't. I wasn't. I definitely couldn't explain it at the time. I didn't know what was going on, but I wasn't frightened. You know, it's funny. That summer I spent in Haiti was um, the last time I was there. I've been there in, in so long, but it is an experience where you realize you're you're. This is where your roots come from. You know, there's so much of the way my family there going back decades and centuries lived their lives, which is foreign to me. So I did have a lot of curiosity about it. You know, I'll never forget, like there was a goat, you know, somewhere on the pro- my uncle's property, as well, you know, walking around one day, next thing you know, looking out the window, see him slid- slitting his throat and we're having that goat for dinner um, that the same night. It sounds very like Americanized for me to put it that way, but it was not a thing I'd realized before, right? And you realize you process the cycles of life and death and what you inherit from the place you live in and the people that you live around a whole lot differently, you know? So like the fact that my extended family was nonplussed about my mom having this experience made me feel a lot more at ease about it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. Strikes me as kind of magical too. Like I I think, you know, I'd be into that. You know, this is a way better story than my uncle telling N word jokes at the fucking Thanksgiving table. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? In terms of like a, uh, uh, a family culture like I don't have a I don't have any of that shit so I find it fascinating and I think it's pretty cool and you know as you get older you realize that like look you can put that stuff in a certain frame because Haiti is a poor black country in the Caribbean and there are certain stereotypes associated with that but like once you kind of dissipate those ideas those stereotypical ideas around that stuff you realize it's not that far a jump from somebody catching the spirit in a church in the United States and speaking in tongues. It's all spiritualism. Right. Right. And just because the people who, who, who practice it look a different way or do it in a different place or it comes from different, different traditions doesn't mean it's lesser. And I think that's something I learned really early on and I'm forever grateful for having that experience and, and coming from that place. Um, Yeah. So like I'm tend to be less scared of stuff like that. That's which awesome. Is just, which is to say, I'm not inviting any visitations in my house <laughs> tonight. <laughs> Don't call me; I'll call you. <laughs> so I I know that uh, that you're going to have to go here pretty soon. Do you have time to hear my Harlan Ellison related story before we we call this quits? All right. So setting the stage, this is sometime in the late aughts. I was kind of at the height of my like figuring out my writing prowess at ain't it cool news. I was doing a, a, a series there called a movie a day where I was writing about uh, a movie that I hadn't seen. It was uh, every single day I would watch something and, and the next movie would be connected to it in some certain way. So say if I watched a Henry Fonda movie, uh, the next movie would be, you know, a star co-starring one of his stars from, from that the, the previous movie or the same director, but a different genre, that kind of thing. Um, and I was doing that every day as, as kind of an exercise and filling my movie knowledge. And at the exact same time, we got one of the only like truly scary stalkers of the site that, that we had in, in all my time there um, to the point where it was somebody who was like emailing my boss, Harry, he was emailing some of the writers, like threatening to drive in from, 
whatever state it was out of state. It was like Arkansas or Georgia or something threatening to drive in and he was going to kill us kind of things. It was, it was really scary. Um, and his, his, uh, his sister's mom got in touch directly with, with Harry and was like, you know, uh, she, she called him and to essentially say she's aware of what her son has been doing and to warn us that he hadn't, uh, uh, that he left his apartment the day before with his car and nobody knows where he is. So, so this is, this is the, the, the setting of all this, um, was happening. And I suddenly get a phone call, uh, that I, from a number I don't recognize. It was not a number I don't recognize. It was just a straight up block number. I didn't answer. The person left a voicemail essentially saying, next time I call, you pick up the phone. You want to talk to me. And, uh, and so I, I'm, I naturally was like, maybe this is the crazy guy that, you know, that was threatening violence against any cool writers. This person would call at least two times a day. Um, and then, and I wouldn't pick up some, and like, uh, after not picking up for two or three times, he left another voicemail agitated going, are you avoiding me? Pick up the phone. Like, you know, I've been calling, I've been leaving voicemails, pick up the phone, talk to me. Uh, next time I call, you better pick up the phone and talk to me. And, and I was like, oh man, the fuck is, is going on. And, and, uh, and then the very last one in exasperated thing, he's like, fine, well, I guess you just don't want to talk to me. This is Harlan Ellison, by the way. And, and click, and then like he left a, a number and, and then clicked. And I was like, holy shit. And I, I fucking got in touch with my boss going, going, can you fucking imagine that uh, this crazy guy called me claiming to be Harlan Ellison? And, and Harry just started laughing going, no, that is Harlan Ellison. I gave him your phone number. And I was like, what? And he, I had written a review of a movie called the goodbye girl for a movie a day. Um, and it's a Richard Dreyfus movie. And uh, Richard Dreyfus in that review, I mentioned that I'd heard that Richard Dreyfus based that character in the movie on Harlan Ellison because they had been friendly. Uh, and I said, I don't know. I've met Harlan once or twice at like a signing or whatever. Um, and this doesn't really strike me as, as being the Harlan that I met. And so sure enough, it was Harlan Ellison calling me trying to uh, tell me that yes, indeed Richard Dreyfus or Ricky as he called him was, <laughs> was uh, uh did indeed base that performance off of off of him and then he told me like a crazy story about richard dreyfus being a uh a, 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 like a, a janitor at a hospital when like harlan brought his ODing girlfriend in once and he like helped him out or something like it, it was it was that but yeah so i ended up calling harlan ellison who started off the conversation of course super pissed off because he's a cantankerous old fuck anyway um and he's like when i said oh hi this is eric from any cool and he goes oh no it can't be he doesn't have a phone you know that was the, <laughs> the, the so so that, that is the background i i spent about an hour on the phone with him you know and he was super nice by the end of it and and you could tell that he was just very lonely at that point and like he called a couple of times after that just to have a random conversation uh and i picked up so that is my harlan ellison story and uh i gotta uh, say the hardest part to believe about all this is that having read ain't it cool news's talk back section back in the day uh-huh. that there might have been an unhinged person uh involved <laughs> in all that that just that doesn't sound like the ain't it cool news i know <laughs> Oh yeah, I have no idea what happened to the, you know, like if that guy ever like got found and got help or whatever, but he certainly never showed up on my doorstep. No, you but got yeah, it was a very scary time and that's and a fucking dream. This isn't even happening right now, Eric. It's time to wake up. Oh yeah. Wake up. Yes. 
Give us a um, hug, Eric. <laughs> so I, I got, I got, I blew off Harlan Ellison, and then I got yelled at for it, and uh, just because I thought he was a uh, a crazy stalker. That is my run in with Harlan Ellison. My story that I will add on to this is I kicked Ray Bradbury in the nuts one time, and I do not regret it. Uh, Evan, this is usually the point in the conversation where we allow uh, our guests to tease what they're working on next. Uh, my understanding is that you are building the next Spider-Man game uh, from the ground up yourself. Uh, this is a one-man operation, and you're going to see it through to the end, from the writing to the voice acting to the animations. Is that correct? I I, I don't know why I agreed to do this shit. This is- <laughs> <laughs> no the one thing i'll say is like now that i'm on the other side of video games the other side of the fence from like journalism and criticism is like you know you just realize how many people it takes to make these things it's insane and i'm doing more video game stuff that i can't talk about but it's really cool and really exciting uh what can i talk about i guess the only thing i can talk about is genlock which is uh the second season of the science fiction kind of east meets west anime show made by Rooster Teeth. I was a consultant on the first season, wrote a bit of uh, uh, there, and I was a full staff writer in the second season, and that's coming out at some point. I don't know exactly when. Um, Michael B. Jordan. Yeah, um, Michael B. Jordan does a, a voice of the lead character. Killer cast, David Tennant. Uh, I was working at Rooster Teeth whenever all that was in the works. That was like the thing that they were the most excited about. Yeah, no, I think... I, I can't wait to see the second season fully realized. Like we wrote the scripts and, you know, to see it come to life is going to be amazing. We, 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 I think definitely smoke for the fences on it. That's all I can really say comfortably. <laughs> yeah. Um, everything else I'm working on, I can't talk about right now, but it's really cool. Well, fair enough. <laughs> and uh, this was great. Uh, you were a great guest and uh, we will absolutely have you back. Uh, thank you for being here today uh, to talk about grandmas and, and voodoo and, and, what have you? Do you have anything you want to add? Uh, no, man. This is this is uh, this is great. I apologize to uh, Barrett Oliver for for. Uh, I know he got out of the business, but this is probably still a sore spot. I'm sorry, I made fun of your acting, but you know, you kind of know what you did. Barrett, if I see you in real life, I will fight you. That's my promise. <laughs> We're taking these two opposite approaches here, but that's how this is going. <laughs> Oh, I forgot. I can also plug Marvel's Declassified, which is a, a podcast I'm co-hosting with Lorraine Sink, which digs into uh, like the secret backstories of people, places, and uh, events that inform some of Marvel's uh, most important stories. Awesome. Right on. You splice that in wherever you need to. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> tack that on somewhere else. And... All right, y'all. I got to run, but thank you so much. This was fun. Many thanks to Evan for joining us for that uh, deeply personal, strangely personal episode. We learned many things about him. We learned that his creepy grandma chewed dip. Let's not let's not call Evan's grandma creepy. That might I think not he be called his grandma creepy. Well, it's been a while since we recorded this one, and I've not heard it back recently. Yeah. Um. So you, if so, you can trust me. If so, if so, fine. But yes, that was that's that's one of my favorite episodes of the show. You, we really never know what we're going to get when we sit down to record one of these. And um, the ones that do veer off into personal territory are always the most interesting ones to me. It sort of marries the guest to the subject in a way that is so unique to them that you won't find it anywhere else. And that makes them all the more special to me. So I, I love this fucking episode. Me too. I think he's a great guest and it won't be the last time you hear Evan on the show. And that's all I'll say about that for now. 
Yep. <laughs> so, Scott, tell them what we got in store next week. I am extremely hyped about the episode that's dropping next week. We are doing Cujo again. The guest that shows this was a real long shot. They are very difficult to land an interview with, but this particular guest was hyped about the idea. Pick Cujo straight out of the gate was like, you know, really uh, excited about doing that title. And um, the results are, are just fucking phenomenal. The only hint that I will give you about this one is that it's an author. And if you're a horror fan, it's probably an author that you're aware of. I think a certain segment of our listenership is going to lose their fucking minds when they realize who it is. That's right. It's R.L. Stein. (laughs) (laughs) I'd talk to that guy. I'd love to talk to R.L. Stein. Yeah, bring him on. It's a a great up and good conversation. Awesome guest. Uh, I think you guys will be psyched for it. And on the Patreon this Friday, we have an episode that's very close to my heart. There's the fucking it's, noise again. You didn't hear that? I, I heard something, but I just thought, was that not it, on your it, end? It I wasn't the I didn't same. See it's not the same noise I heard during the intro, but it's some sort of interference is coming in. I swear to God, yeah, I'm not own, imagining this. And there's nothing on yeah, my end that could be causing it. Your phone's not close to the mic or anything? No. All right. Hold on. Just be quiet for a second. Let's see. What the fuck? Oh, yeah, that's weird. I'll see if I can clean it up in uh, in editing. Do you think this has anything to do with the emails we've been getting and what's been going on on the Twitter for the last week or two? I don't know. I don't know. I'll just roll with it. It might even not show up in the actual audio. We'll we'll see what uh, what the raw audio sounds like. All right, we'll roll um, it back. Tell them about what's going on in the bonus episode this Friday, Eric. Yeah, no. Okay, as I was saying, the, uh, the Patreon episode this Friday is a topic that's close to my heart. I grew up a giant Monster Squad fan. And, uh, of course, the iconic T-shirt worn by the main kid in the movie, Stephen King Rules, has become, you know, I don't know, kind of a cornerstone of Stephen King fandom. So I figured it would be really nice to invite Andre Gower, who was the kid wearing that shirt, onto the show to talk about the legacy of the Stephen King Rules shirt. And to ensure that he's not mad that we made parody shirts of that that we sold (laughs) under the KingCast banner. For sure, which uh, people are starting to get now, by the way. So if you want your own quote-unquote parody Stephen King shirt, you can can visit... What's what's that address? You you, you know it better than I do. It's uh, HTTPS colon backslash backslash the KingCast dot store envy. And that's S-T-O-R-E-N-V-Y dot com. And you can order your own shirt there. So I guess in an awkward way, we're celebrating that those shirts are finally getting mailed out to our people. We're, we've been loving seeing the uh, the pictures of everybody getting and wearing the shirts. And uh, just in a nice bit of synchronicity, totally not planned. Uh, but we'll pretend like it was part of a giant master plan. Yes. Uh, we have this bonus episode this Friday with Andre Gower, star of the Monster Squad, to talk about the shirt. Uh, his impressions at the time, like what he knows about the history of the shirt and kind of the legacy of the shirt mm-hmm. uh, as the Monster Squad has kind of gained this uh, cult fandom over yeah, the last a lot uh, of monster, decade and a half. Monster Squad talk in there. Come for the t-shirt talk. Stay for the Monster Squad <laughs> chatter. Great. So I think uh, I think that should do it. Uh, is there anything else you want to remind the people of? Maybe rate and review us on iTunes. That would be nice. Yes. Five stars only. And I want to remind everyone to get 
fucking hyped about next week's uh, main feed episode on Wednesday with Cujo. I'm dying to see what the response is from from our listeners when they realize who the guest is. That'll be next Wednesday. We'll announce the guest via our Twitter feed at KingCast19. It's on Monday. Yes, correct. So stay tuned there. Adios, folks. The KingCast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi, that's me, and Scott Wampler. Tira Andley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director, and editing is done by yours truly. Mm-hmm.